Greetings to all of you dear people this morning. It's so good to be here and to worship with you and trust God can bless our time of fellowship, our time of looking into His Word. May His Holy Spirit give direction and illuminate our hearts and minds that we can truly soak in the truth that is there and apply it to our lives. I thought about that verse that we just sang, first verse of that song, Rise Up, O Man of God, Have Done With Lesser Things. Sometimes we sing some of these songs, and we've, we've sung them for years, and uh, maybe we don't fully grasp what we're singing. As I sing that first verse, uh, what comes to me is, Rise Up, O Man of God, Be Done With Lesser Things, okay? Give soul and heart and mind and strength and all those things to serve the King of Kings. Get rid of the lesser things. See, the fact is, in our Christian lives, those lesser things can steal our zeal, can steal our energy, can steal our focus, so that we cannot then fully give all to Jesus Christ. And in the Christian life, it's somewhat directly proportional you get out of it what you put into it. And so you put a little bit in, well, you're going to get a little bit out. But you put it all in for the Lord Jesus Christ, and the promise is that you will receive it all 100-fold. So that's the challenge for me and for you as well this morning. Rise up, O men and women of God. Be done with the lesser things and give your whole heart and mind and strength to serve who? The King of Kings. He's worthy of it all. I invite you to Ephesians chapter 1 for a text this morning. I would like for us this morning to focus on a few verses that I'm not sure that I have ever heard preached. Now, perhaps I just forget. Perhaps I don't forget. Perhaps I haven't heard them preached. I don't know about you, but there's, there's a, a set of verses in this passage that I believe often get overlooked. Now, we, we often refer to verses in the first part of Ephesians chapter 1 where we think about our, our Heavenly Father who has blessed us with all these spiritual blessings in Christ. And it's beautiful. There's so much there. He's given us uh, grace and peace. And He's given us, um, He's chosen us. He's adopted us. He's predestinated us. He's, he's accepted us. He's forgiven us. He's redeemed us. And, and the list goes on and on. Maybe you've heard sermons from the first part of Ephesians chapter 1. It's wonderful. And then we've, we've often referred to the, the verses in the latter part of that chapter where it talks about, Paul says, I want you to know the power of His resurrection. I want you to experience that. It's, it's, you know, I want you to have that power working in you. It's just like the power that, that raised Jesus from the dead. That power can be alive and well in your life. I want you to know that. I want you to experience that. And, and so we, we think about that and we preach about that. There's a few verses in the middle that perhaps we either we overlook or we're just not sure sometimes what to do with them. I'm wondering if maybe the latter is more accurate. 
It's verses that maybe make us a little bit uncomfortable because maybe they smell a little bit like Calvinism. Maybe they, maybe they seem to have sort of a, the echo that comes from the Protestant camp. But dear people, verses 13 and 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 are truth for us today to be claimed and to be applied to our life. And in fact, I believe, in fact, they are the link that connects the first part of the chapter with the last part of the chapter. And so true, we do experience all these wonderful blessings in Christ Jesus. He has done so much for us. In the latter part of the chapter speaks about that resurrection power that should be alive and well and can be alive and well in our lives. But it is through the work of the Holy Spirit whereby we are sealed, it is through that sealing of the Holy Spirit and the confidence that comes from that that gives us the power and gives us the, the zeal, as it were, to then live in the power of the resurrection. And so those are the verses we'd like to focus on this morning. Follow along, starting at verse 11. Kind of breaking in here. You know how the Apostle Paul wrote these massive sentences. We're breaking in here. Verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. In whom? Uh, in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I want you to notice that this word inheritance here in verse 11 is a different word than the inheritance that we will read in verse 14. The inheritance here in 11 has to do with we are chosen. It's about who? It's about the people. We are chosen. We are heirs. In Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance or we have been chosen. We are sons and daughters. Therefore, we are heirs. Therefore, we have something waiting for us. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that comforting? That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And that is referring more specifically to the Jewish believers. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. The Apostle Paul is writing this to the church there at Ephesus. But then he goes on to say, in whom ye also trusted. Okay, so now we're not just talking about uh, to the saints which are at Ephesus, but we are now talking about to the faithful in Christ Jesus as well. Hearkening back to verse 1. And that's to you and me, dear brothers and sisters. To all the faithful in Christ Jesus, in whom ye also trusted. I can kind of see the Apostle Paul pointing or maybe making a sweeping move. In whom ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that good news. In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Okay, now that has to do more with what we will yet experience. What is yet coming. As sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, there is something coming for us. There is something waiting. 
which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. You see that phrase three times in this first part of Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This is all about bringing glory to Jesus Christ. It's not really about us as much as it is about the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, for a bit of context here, I want us to note that the book of Ephesians was written about the church. Okay? It was written about the church. In fact, we have the word church nine different times in the book of Ephesians. And then three more times, we either see the body of Christ or the body. Okay, so the church, the body of Christ, the body. It is a major theme. It's a major focus in this epistle to the Ephesians. And so the Apostle Paul is writing here that the church was predestined before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before him. God in his sovereignty determined that the church would be the one. They would be the ones to inherit the promises. The church of Jesus Christ. The question that we must ponder this morning is this. Will we as individuals choose to be a part of that? Will we as individuals choose to be a part of it? The church of Jesus Christ will go on. There will be a faithful church at the end of time. There will be a church that is holy and without blame before Him. God has predestinated that way. Will you be a part of it? Will I be a part of it? A question that we must ponder today. I want you to notice the order here in verse 13. There is progressive action that we see in verse 13. There is a hearing, then there is a believing, and then there is a sealing. Hearing, believing, sealing. Now what does that mean? What do these, what do these words mean? Well, hearing has everything to do with obeying. It's not just simply in one ear and out the other. It's not just simply that I heard something. And that makes all the difference. It's what do I do with what I hear? And so the Apostle Paul says that there is a hearing that is foundational to what comes last. A hearing is about obeying. You hear, oh, that's for me. Oh, it requires acting on what I hear. And so we hear the word of God. There's obedience involved. And then there is a believing. And this certainly is not just an easy believism, as it were. <laughs> this is not just simply that I, that I heard something and I believe. You know, I believe in God. Kind of like, kind of like our, our little girl Molly uh, said some time ago. You know how they can be so cute, have these little neat things they say. And she said, Daddy, I like God. <laughs> I said, well, that's great, Molly. I'm glad you like him. And as you grow up, I hope that you learn to love him, too. And there's a lot of people today that kind of have that attitude. I like God. And that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> okay? 
Believing is more than just liking God, okay? Believing has to do with yielding. Someone has said that believing, to believe is to come to Christ and to yield yourself to Him. It is a daily yielding. It is not just a simply a, a one time I said the sinner's prayer, I believe, and now I move on. It's not that I just simply walked down the aisle because my buddies did. It's more than that. It is a yielding. It is a lifestyle. Well, then what is this sealing all about? Okay, well, that's what we want to look at more this morning. There is a hearing. There's an obeying. There is a believing, a yielding. There's a sealing. We all want that, right? That sounds wonderful, but maybe that makes us nervous. We want to try to unpack that a bit this morning. One thing that the scripture does not say here or in other places that you are sealed and saved unconditionally all the way until the end of time, no matter the conduct. We don't see that. And yet there are those that like to believe that. In fact, there are those that promote that. In fact, there are those within the Christian circles in fact, sometimes we read some of their articles and we listen to some of their sermons and we maybe listen to some of their podcasts. There are those who preach that doctrine across the pulpit and in their writings, and they make it very strong. That's not what the scripture says. We're thinking this morning about a seal. What actually is a seal? You know, it's, it's something that we don't know as much about today. But back in the olden days, way back, I understand, they used seals quite a bit. Now, a seal could have been maybe from clay or from uh, soft wax. And someone would have used maybe their signet ring that had their initials on it or maybe some other tool that had a certain engraving that it marked identity, okay? It marked ownership. It said, this is real. This is authentic. This is from me. You can trust it. And so uh, a seal was often put on maybe an official document that was sent from one person to another. You would also find a seal on, per on personal property. So maybe Bill's chariot had... Bill's personal seal on it. That's mine. Uh, maybe Joe's sword had Joe's personal seal on it, stating that this is, this is Joe's, okay? But it was, it was a unique marking that said, this is authentic, this is real, this is mine. It's ownership, it's my property. There is nothing that I can find in Scripture or in history that suggests a seal absolutely cannot be tampered with. Now, in the, in the past, when someone placed a seal on something, the idea was, well, let me say it first this way, the idea was not that it could never be removed. Instead, it was for the purpose, once again, of showing a unique mark of authenticity or a unique mark of ownership. Now, 
most likely the aim was for that seal to remain untouched until it got to the person that was intended. That was the idea. That was the goal. But there was no guarantee that it would never be removed until then. There was no guarantee that it remained untouched until that. In fact, seals could be removed because when it got to the place it needed to go, when it got to the right person as far as the official document, it was removed then to open the document. I would just like to note just a few places in Scripture where that seals were removed, seals were broken. And one that comes to mind right away, and maybe you think of this one, it was perhaps the greatest, if not one of the greatest, moments in history where a seal was broken. That was at the tomb of Jesus Christ. You know the story where the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they were all in a tizzy and they went to Pilate and they said, hey, we remember that this deceiver said that in three days I'm going to rise again. Now, we want you to make that tomb sure so that his disciples don't come by night and steal the body away and then say, see, he's risen from the dead just like he said. What did Pilate say? Go for it. Suit yourselves. And so the scripture says that they went, we read it in Matthew chapter 27, so they went and they made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now you know as well as I do that that seal was broken. That seal was removed. Now, and you might be thinking, okay, well, Josh, God did that. Okay, I'm just giving you one example there. And I understand God did that. But there's other places in Scripture. We think of the seal of circumcision. The seal of circumcision for those under the old covenant. And we read about this in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. Speaking of Abraham here, Romans 4.11, we read, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Okay, and so the rite of circumcision was known as a seal, marking you as the real deal. Okay, slang term. As a real, full-bred Jew into the Jewish church you could say you've been circumcised you have a mark the seal of circumcision and yet dear people this seal was broken and guaranteed nothing when those who were circumcised broke the law and Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 2 25 for circumcision verily profiteth yet it does profit he says if thou keep the law but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. There it is. The seal of circumcision stands. And it's good as long as you keep the law. But if you break the law, the seal of circumcision means nothing. Paul goes on to write in Romans chapter 11 that circumcised Jews or sealed Jews, we could say, were broken off because of unbelief. One other thing I'll mention yet. 
and that is in the Old Testament in First Samuel chapter 16, where it says that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, King Saul. The spirit of the Lord departed from King Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. You see, there's there's this thought out today. There's this theology today that says that's not possible. You can't lose that. And in fact, if you lose that, what's that? That's just really saying that you never had it in the first place. Dear people, that's not consistent with Scripture. That's not consistent with Scripture. It's very clear in Scripture numerous times that you can have the Spirit of God and lose that. In fact, here in the Old Testament, that's just one little example. You can do some digging for yourself. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. How could it depart from him if he didn't have it in the first place? Okay, that's the question that I like to ask. Well, as we look at Scripture as a whole, we see that this seal of the Spirit is conditioned on continued faith and obedience. And there it is again, fellows, from the Sunday school lesson this morning. We talked about that, and we could go on and on. But, but the seal of the Spirit is conditioned on continued faith and obedience. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 15 and 16, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Oh, there it is, some will say. He may abide with you forever. Absolutely. But the condition is within the context of keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. You see. And and we read about Peter and the rest of the apostles in Acts chapter 5. The scripture says that they answered the Sanhedrin, or they answered the chief priests. In other words, they were, they were in, in union, in unity on this one. This wasn't just one of their ideas, but this was the stand of the early church. And they said, and we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Okay? God gives the Holy Ghost to those who obey Him. Now, let's, let's look at this seal of the Spirit. I'd like to present it in, in four points here this morning. What does the seal of the Spirit represent to us today? First of all, the seal of the Spirit is a proof of purchase. It's a proof of purchase. Now, the word seal or sealed is from the Greek word Spragizo, spragizo, and it means this, to seal up, to close or make fast with a seal, to set a mark on anything to prove that it is genuine, authentic, approved, to show ownership. That's that Greek word, spragizo. And so today, we often prove ownership by a piece of paper. What is that called? It's called a title. Okay? You purchase a vehicle. 
uh, you purchase a house, you purchase something big like that, there's often a title. You receive a title. That is that seal. That is that proof of purchase, as it were. And either we file it away or put it in our safe or <laughs> give it to Mennonites of Virginia, one or the other. But it is that proof of purchase, okay? It's a title. That's what we use today. In Paul's day, ownership was proven by a seal. And you know, dear people, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is God's spiritual seal indicating that we belong to Him, that we are His, that He has bought us with His own precious blood and therefore He owns us. It's a spiritual seal upon the heart of each believer. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, for ye, are, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see? They are His. We are His. He owns us. He has bought us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Adam Clark comments this way. The Holy Spirit in the soul of the believer is God's seal set on his heart to testify that he is God's property and that he should be wholly employed in God's service. And so, dear people, the seal of the Spirit is not a license then to live however we want to because we're sealed. We're locked and loaded until the day of redemption. No, it is not a license to live according to ourself. Instead, with it comes the responsibility to live fully for Jesus Christ because He owns us. We are living for Him. He bought us. Along with being a proof of purchase that represents ownership, the seal of the Spirit is also proof of authenticity. And I mentioned that before. But it is the seal that, that is a mark of God's approval. God is putting that, that mark of approval on our lives and saying, you are genuine. You are authentic. I approve you as one of mine. You are my daughter. You are my son, as it were. Uh, that presence of the Spirit in our lives is proof that, that we are genuine, that we meet His standard. Isn't that beautiful? What, a, what an assurance that gives us. What confidence that should bring to our lives. When you feel the Holy Spirit working within you, directing you through the voice of your conscience, when, you, when, you, when those, the fruit of the Spirit is working within you, God is saying, you're mine. You meet my standards. I love you. Doesn't that give you confidence? And we'll look at the word confidence in just a moment. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. There it is, ownership. The Lord knoweth them that are His, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That is what is engraved in the seal of the Spirit, as it were. The Lord knoweth them that are His, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 
And I truly believe that that is what we as Anabaptist people strive to do. Now, we don't always get it right. But we see the two go hand in hand. I am Christ, therefore I live to please Him. In fact, do all to the glory of God. And we take that literally. We strive to live our lives how we think, how we live, how we talk, what we listen to, what we read. All of that to the glory of God. We feel like it goes hand in hand. And my burden is that in the larger mainstream Christian circles, that is being neglected. And some of that is creeping in in subtle ways and maybe not so subtle into our churches today. We must be on guard about that. And so the seal of the Spirit is a proof of purchase. Secondly, the seal of the Spirit is a pledge of payment. It's a pledge of payment. Now, here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, let me read this again. So, at uh, the end of 13, it says, You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of His glory. Now, what is the earnest of our inheritance? What does that mean? Children, are we talking about a man's name, Ernest? No. Are we talking about, Lord, I am fondly, earnestly longing? Is that what we're... No. It's not that either. What are we talking about? What, what does the Bible mean when it says, which is the earnest of our inheritance? Well, this word earnest here is the Greek word arbon, arbon, which is only found three times in the New Testament. And it means this. It is a pledge given to ratify a contract a first payment, or a first installment. That which confirms the bargain, pledging that all the price will be paid. A down payment. And maybe that is, that is most clear to us today. It is a down payment. It is a deposit. It is something of value given by a buyer to a seller to bind the bargain. And I like this one. It is a token of what is to come. That's beautiful. It is a token of what is to come. Paul writes here that you're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is the down payment until the purchase. Until, what does it say? The down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchase possession. It is a token of what is to come. I read a quote from Albert Barnes. He says, The earnest of the Spirit denotes that God gives to His people the influences of His Spirit. His operation on the heart as a part, and I notice, as a part or pledge that all the blessings of the covenant of redemption shall be given to them. And so, once again, he is saying here that God gives the Holy Spirit. He gives that to us as a token of what is to come. It's just a part. It's just a pledge saying that one day you will receive all the rest in all its fullness. In other words, this is a somewhat of saying that I am giving this to you. I'm saving you. 
and I'll give you the rest next. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and here I want to bring out, uh, among a couple things maybe, this thing of confidence and how the seal of the Spirit, how the Holy Spirit in our lives produces confidence, but it also assures us of what is to come. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and starting at verse 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit, or he has given unto us the down payment or the guarantee of his Spirit. Verse 6, therefore, <laughs> this is great, therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Okay, so here is the context. The context here is that believers one day will have new, imperishable, resurrected bodies. When Christ returns, when he comes again, we'll have a new life, new bodies, resurrected bodies. This will be given to them. And, and we believe this, right? We believe this. But maybe we have the question sometimes, but how will I know? How can I be assured of this? Like, sometimes maybe we doubt a little bit in our weaker times. We, we doubt, we, we want to believe that, but how can I be sure of this? Well, once again, he says, now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing, and that is God has created us. God has designed it to be this way, that we would live for him and that we would live with him eternally. That's God's purpose for us. He's created us to be worshipers of him. He's created us to live for him and to live with him eternally forever. Now God who hath wrought us for the selfsame, now he who hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who hath also given unto us the down payment, the guarantee, the earnest of his spirit. Therefore, we're always confident. You see, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is that assurance that God's word is true. You can count on it. You can count on it. God says that this is how it's going to be. And as a token of that, he has given us his Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of what is to come. Thirdly, then, what does the seal of the Spirit represent? The seal of the Spirit is a proclamation of presence. A proclamation of presence. You see, the daily expressions of the Holy Spirit in our lives is proof that Christ is living within us. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Just back a page or two in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's notice verses 21 and 22. Now he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. And let me just say this. God has, he has established us. He has anointed us. And that, that thing of anointing, dear people... 
Paul is not just talking about God has anointed some of the superstar Christians, some of the heroes of faith, some special ones. Dear people, that anointing is given to all believers. That anointing is given to you, is given to me. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are anointed by God to do his work. To be his people, he has a special mission for us. We are God's holy people set out to do his holy work. Now, he which establishes us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. And I want to to draw out that phrase a bit. He has given the earnest of the spirit. He has given that down payment, that guarantee of the spirit in our hearts. But it does not stay within our hearts, as it were. (laughs) Okay, the Holy Spirit, the seal of the spirit is a proclamation of presence. Because when the Holy Spirit is truly living within us, you can't hide that. It will come out in your everyday life. It will be visible. It will come out in the fruit of the Spirit being evident in your life. And so that seal of the Spirit is a proclamation that Christ is living within you. It's proof that you're genuine, that you are connected to the right source, to the truth, to the life. Now, I want us to note what the Bible says about the witness of the Spirit in our hearts. And turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we note here what the Apostle Paul writes about the witness of the Spirit in our hearts. You see, the Holy Spirit communicates to us God's closeness. You could say God's intimacy with us. God's love. The Holy Spirit is what communicates that to us. You see, when Jesus left, he told the disciples, I will send you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And so Jesus was the truth. He is the life. He is the truth. He was there in person with the disciples, nurturing them and teaching them and guiding them and instructing them. And then he left. And the disciples were very worried about that. Now, how can we go? How will we know the way to God? And Jesus said, well, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send you the comforter. And that is the presence of God in your life. The Holy Spirit, I say, communicates God's intimacy, God's closeness, God's love. Verse 9 of Romans chapter 8. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now let's move on to verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
Another rendering of verse 16 puts it this way. For his Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we are God's children. Have you ever felt that? I have. It is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Maybe you're having a hard day. Maybe things are just really feeling overwhelming. And you've cried out to God and just said, Lord, show me a token. Give me a token of, of your presence. I, I'm struggling. Like, am I living right? It, Lord, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm just dealing, I'm battling with these, these, these contrary thoughts. And can you just please speak to me and show me that you love me and that you're with me? And, that, and then throughout the course of that day, something happens. Maybe through the words of someone, maybe through something in the mail, maybe a text message, maybe flowers, you name it. And it just, it almost brings you to tears. You see, that is God's presence. That is God's proof. That is God's guarantee that you are, you are my child. I love you. I care about you. And it is through the communication of the Holy Spirit that we sense that, we feel that. Note verse 18. <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit in our hearts is just a token. It's just a part. It's just a pledge. But what we experience now, <laughs> you could put it this way, it's just a mere taste of the amazing change that we will experience one day. Isn't that something? Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. In verses 6 and 7. Galatians 4, 6. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Or it's that endearing, Daddy, Daddy. It's our Heavenly Father. It's our Daddy Father. The one who we run to when we're in trouble. The one who protects us. The one who cares about us. He has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're noting here just a few spots in Scripture where it talks about the witness of the Spirit in our hearts. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 24. We read this. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him. And he in him. You see that close connection? And hereby we know that he abideth in us. How? By the Spirit which he hath given us. That's how you know. That's how you know that you are in Christ. That's how you know that, you, that your relationship with Him is authentic. By His Spirit that dwells in you. He has given it to you. Now, chapter 4 and verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, does it not? But I'm human. 
And, and I know that these, that these questions can come to our minds sometimes. And maybe this is what you're thinking. Yeah, I know that's what the Bible says. I've read that, and I, I believe it, and I want to believe it even more. But how can I really know? How can I know that the Spirit is really living within me? Well, let me just ask you a few questions. Who is on the throne of your life? Who is calling the shots in your life? Is it yourself? Is it your flesh? Or is it the Spirit of God? Are the influences of the Holy Spirit a reality in your life? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? Are you experiencing peace? Are you experiencing peace? Do you have a clear conscience before God? Another quote here from Albert Barnes on this matter. He says, Christians are said to be sealed. To be sealed by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit is given to them to confirm them as belonging to God. He grants them His Spirit. He renews and sanctifies them. He produces in their hearts those feelings, hopes, and desires which are an evidence that they are approved by God, that they are regarded as His adopted children, that their hope is genuine, and that their redemption and salvation are sure in the same way as a seal makes a will or an agreement sure. God grants to them His Holy Spirit as the certain pledge that they are His and shall be approved and saved in the last day. In this there is nothing miraculous or in the nature of direct revelation. Listen to what he says here. It consists of the ordinary operations of the Spirit on the heart, producing repentance, faith, hope, joy, conformity to God, the love of prayer and praise, and the love of the Christian virtues, and these things are the evidences that the Holy Spirit has renewed the heart and that the Christian is sealed for the day of redemption. He says, in a sense, there's nothing miraculous about that. But it consists of the ordinary operations of the Spirit in the heart. Well, I would say that the work of salvation is in many ways a miracle. It's a miracle of grace. And yet I understand what he's saying. It is proven by the ordinary operations of the Spirit in your heart. That day-to-day living of your life. Yielding yourself to God. Obedience to His Spirit, His will. Obedience to the Word of God. And that is proof. And once again, that doesn't just stay inside. But when that is real within you, there is a proclamation then of that presence. Now, lastly, the seal of the Spirit is a promise of protection. The seal of the Spirit is a promise of protection. You see, when the Holy Spirit of God is living within you, you have nothing to fear. Truly, dear people, you have nothing to fear. You are completely, and let me say that you are eternally safe in Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit of God is living within you. And within that context, I am a firm believer in eternal security. Within that context. So the scripture says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Amen. No one can snatch us out of God's hand. Amen. We are truly kept by the power of God 
as we daily yield ourselves to His control, allowing Him to have His will in us and through us, we are kept by the power of God. And yet, dear people, the Scripture talks about how that we can resist the Spirit. In Acts chapter 7, as Stephen was standing before the Sanhedrin, he says, Ye always resist the Holy Ghost. The Scripture talks how that we can grieve the Spirit of God. Ephesians 4 verse 30, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And that's one of those spots where, where those who say, See, you're sealed unto the day of redemption. I believe that they're, they're jumping the gun a bit. Uh, if, you, if you read that verse in other renderings, it often renders uh, the word until as for. Whereby ye are sealed for the day of redemption. And personally, as I studied, I believe that is the better rendering. But grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. So don't resist him. Don't grieve him. First Thessalonians chapter five, quench not the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. Don't quench his work in your life. Don't quench that voice, that still small voice. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it refers to insulting the spirit of grace or the wording actually there is they have done despite under the spirit of grace. And the scripture makes it clear that those who are living in that way, those who are resisting, those who are grieving, those who are insulting, those who are quenching, while that is their life practice, while they are living with that attitude, there is no more sacrifice for sin. In, in fact, while they are living that way, while that is their attitude, it is impossible for them to, renewed, to be renewed to repentance. And so, it is absolutely essential that we are open and sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And that we say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be alive and well within me. I want you to have your will and way within me. I want to live in accordance to your will. Help me in that. Show me. And it is within that that there is protection for the believer, that we are eternally secure as we live with an attitude of, of oneness with God and sensitivity to the promptings of the Spirit. Let's end in the book of Revelation. And, and I'm partly sharing this with you as, as an incentive for you to think and to ponder what this might mean. The word seal or sealed is found a number of times in the book of Revelation. And dear people, I just can't help but connect the dots a bit for myself. What this may be saying. It's, it's worth your while to give it some thought. I believe it's powerful. I believe it's beautiful. But let's just note a few spots. Revelation 7. Revelation 7 verses 2 through 4. We're talking about how that the Holy Spirit is a promise of protection. 
Revelation 7, 2, And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Turn to chapter 9 and verse 3. And this is in the context of uh, the, the door to the bottomless pit being opened, being unlocked, and the smoke is coming up from that. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only hurt, I'll add that, only hurt those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Okay. Chapter 14, verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred, forty, and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the th throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. One more yet. Turn to chapter 22. And here we are standing as it were. We are picturing this great, beautiful city. The new Jerusalem. And we're seeing the water of life that is flowing out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it or in this city. And His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. You are mine. You are mine. The seal of the living God. With this inscription engraved in it, the Lord knoweth them that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's beautiful. That's powerful. And that's protection. May God bless you. Let's continue to be students of the Word. And let's continue to be open and sensitive to the voice of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for this opportunity to gather together this morning to dig into Your Word. Lord, it is so full of truth and life. Father, thank You for the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. And Lord, we want to be more open to Your work within us. We want the work of the Holy Spirit to be alive and well within us. Give us hearts that, that yearn to do Your will. And Father, I pray that as we sang earlier, that we would be done with all lesser things, that we could truly serve You with a full heart of faith in all of life. We want to serve the King of Kings. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. May it speak to us. May it encourage us. May it challenge us. And help us to be faithful until the very end. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.